0: If you knew you were going to win the lottery this next week, not that any of you would purchase tickets, obviously, but if you knew you were to win the lottery next week, how would it impact the way you spend the money you have right now? Or if you knew you were to die in six months from right now, how would it impact the way you live between now and that time? Maybe another setting What if you were watching A ball game of your Favorite team A very important game And some way Somehow you were to know With absolute confidence That your team would win How would it change The way you Watch that sporting event This last week I was in Florida for a conference, and I was using the evening to prepare my message. And uh, I took a break, and I said, "I'm going to turn on the television and watch some sports." And I turned on to the old ESPN or ESPN of old uh, reruns and so forth. And what's on but my alma mater, the University of Alabama, in the national championship game of 1993 against Miami. Well, I remember the game well. I knew the outcome. And I found that I actually started studying and not even looking up, but from time to time I knew there were a couple of places I wanted to to remember, a few plays I wanted to see. But besides that, there was no great distraction because there was no intensity of involvement in the game because I knew who won. I knew the outcome. There was no surprise. The book of Revelation has been written for you and me as followers of Christ so that we might know the outcome, to know that we win, and therefore to be able to live right now in light of the knowledge of what we know to be true. That's why we call it the rest of the story throughout this series. It's to enable us to see and make sure we're reminded of the final outcome, and then with that in mind, we can, in a sense, rest in the midst of some very tense moments where if you didn't know the end of the story, you'd have great anxiety, wondering what will happen in the midst of this. So for you and me, we go through great trial and tribulation. We know what's going to happen as a result. We know how God's going to use it in our life. We know from where it comes. We know how it's delivered. We know the results that it's intended to produce in our lives. We know what happens even if it takes our life from this earth. We know all of those things. And therefore we approach life with true rest, knowing the outcome. I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. And this is a unique passage in all of Revelation in that it tells the story from beginning, from the first coming of Christ, till the very end. In just a handful of verses. When people ask me, explain the book of Revelation, and I only have a brief time, this is where I would go, right to the 20th chapter and say, if you can just look at the 20th chapter and understand it, you will understand the whole of Revelation, at least the big picture. Because many of you would remember who have been with us through this series that the story is told from the first coming to the second coming of Christ, how many times? Can you remember? Seven times. And there are numerous events that take place from the first to the second coming of Christ. And each of those events are described with greater intensity and clarity in each of those seven occasions. But when we come to chapter 20, it's interesting. We see the whole picture, and it's almost as if every event gets equal attention. So you begin to see the picture very clearly in chapter 20. Many of you have heard the... The uh, little statement that history is best defined as his story, well, you're going to see history, and this is his story. Let's now look at the first verses of Revelation chapter 20. Now let's look at the first of seven events that make history. It's entitled Satan is bound for a thousand years now you that have been with us through this entire series knows that this portion of the text was covered in our keys series I think it's in the second of the three and therefore I'm not going to go into as much detail but let's make sure we get the big picture verse 1 and I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand And he laid hold of the dragon, that's Satan, the serpent of all, and bound him for a thousand years. That's important. A thousand years he is bound. Verse 3, And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations. Important phrase there. Any longer until the thousand years are completed after these things, he must be released for a short time. Now the three issues of importance here is what does it mean? A thousand years. What does it mean that Satan is bound? And the last of verse 3, when he is released for a short time, what is the short time? Let's begin with the thousand years. Many of you would remember the board that we use here, the electronic board that shows us the uh, two different approaches to how we view the eschatology or the study of the last days. And there is a very modern view that uh, begins by saying after the cross, there's what we call the church age that takes you up to the rapture. And so at this point, Christians are taken to be with the Lord. It's what they would call the first resurrection. Then it's followed by a period of seven years in tribulation that then is followed by a second coming of Christ. And this is where he comes with his angels, followed by, and here it is, that thousand-year millennium in the Latin, thousand years. And so the question is, is this a literal thousand years or not? This view says it is, after which that is over. There will be the judgment day. Christ has come to set up his reign, but that reign is on earth, not in heaven, on earth, and now we have the new heaven and the new earth that follows after that. I suggest to you, though certainly we can be wrong, godly, evangelical, Bible-believing teachers disagree, but the historic teaching suggests that the cross begins what's called the church age or the tribulation or the millennium. It's all the same that then is preceded, or is followed, I should say, by the rapture, second coming, and judgment, a series of events together, one in the same time, and then we should put here a period that we would call a short time where Satan is to be released. Now, We would suggest this is the thousand years, and it's not a literal thousand years, but figurative, as all other numbers in the book of Revelation are to be taken. Why not here? And then understanding that, it's figurative, like God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's a certain number. It's a very large number, one unknown to us. And he is reigning during this time. Now, in his reign, Satan has been bound. And so the teaching that I suggest is that at the cross of Jesus Christ, as the gospel begins to be declared, Satan is bound from doing one thing. And I think most of you would remember who have been here. What's the one thing he is bound from doing? Deceiving all the nations. And by the way, the word nations in the Greek language can be translated Gentiles, And so it's during this period that the Gentiles come to faith in Christ. Then at this moment here, there's going to be a releasing of the evil one from his binding of deceiving all the nations. And therefore, we have this brief period in which the nations are deceived once again. It looks like the gospel is being squelched in such a way that it's not even to be, to be uh, uh, proclaimed anymore. In chapter 11 of Revelation, it's personified as two witnesses, the church and its witness, and they're put to death. And then right at the end, as they are rejoicing, the lost world is rejoicing over the death of the gospel, the gospel comes to life, and then we have what is here, the judgment day, or Armageddon at this point. And so, having understood that broad picture, we now move to the next portion of our text. And I encourage you to pick up the tape that goes into great detail about this uh, binding and uh, Satan falling from heaven, uh, the, now the uh, lack of ability for you or me to be accused before God by the evil one. He can no longer do that. And so all of that is explained in the keys. Now we're going to go into the brief release a little bit more when we come to verses 7 and verse 8. And so with that, let's move along in our outline. Number two of the great events, deceased believers reign in heaven following the first resurrection. Now the key to interpreting these next verses is to know what is meant by this called the first resurrection. Let me give you, before we even read the text, let me give you different interpretations. There are three that are somewhat common. Some people would say the first resurrection is referring to the rebirth of believers. That the day you and I become followers of Christ, we experience a new birth, a spiritual birth. That there is a resurrection of life for us and that that's being referred to here. I don't think that holds much merit. There's a second interpretation and that is that this is the translation of the soul at at the body's death. The soul going from this earth To be with the Lord And so when you die There is your first resurrection So to speak I don't I don't go with the second Interpretation either But again I certainly can be wrong I would suggest that the first Resurrection is referring to the Resurrection of Christ It's simply the resurrection Of Christ When you think about it He certainly was the first to be raised. There is cross-reference scripture that gives reference to this to make us assume that it would be him. And I would suggest it's talking about our participation with him in the resurrection. Let's read the text and we'll see how it looks. And I saw thrones, verse 4, and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image had not received the mark upon their forehead or upon their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That raises the question, are we reigning with Christ here during the thousand year millennium of the view of the more modern perspective and therefore it would be an earthly reign or are we reigning with him in a heavenly reign here right now? Well, the whole picture that we go to here is in the heavenlies. It's talking about those who have been martyred who are dead. It gives us every indication to say that the reign is taking place right now with you and me co-reigning with Christ. Now with that we come to Verse 5, and by the way, some of the detail, the mark on the hand and the forehead and all that has been covered in the series, so I will not repeat that now. Then I suggest at verse 5 there is a parenthesis. Now, in the original language of Greek, there are not uh, commas and periods and and parenthesis and so forth, and you have to read in text the context and then make judgments on what's being said. I suggest to you that there is a parenthesis here of thought. It would read as this... Going back a bit, it says the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And oh, yes, the rest of the dead. Now he's shifting from talking about not Christians, but those who are not Christians who have died. They don't come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then he goes right back. He's been talking about the thousand years. And then he says, this is the first resurrection. He's referring back to his original line of thought. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Meaning that we participate in his resurrection, you and I crucified with Christ. We sang that in our time of uh, expressing our worship through song. We said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I... But Christ lives in me, the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with him. That's right. And Romans 6 says, and I'm buried with him. And it says that I am raised up with him. And Ephesians says, I am seated with him in the heavenlies. And so all of us who participate in his first resurrection... That's who he's talking about. Deceased believers, you and me, if we die right this moment, and Christ has not come back, what happens to us? Our souls are taken to be with the Lord immediately. We're with the Lord. That's great news. Our bodies are not with the Lord. They are perishing. Later, to be joined with the bodies, as we will see In just a few moments. But what do we do during this time? We reign with Christ. Meaning we share his glory. That's why we say we're glorified the day we die. We receive full glory. Though we don't have our bodies yet. It's going to get even better when the bodies come. But not greater glory. Just an expression of the use of that glory now. With the physical as well as the spiritual. So deceased believers reign in heaven following the first resurrection. Before we move to the, uh, to the next event, let me suggest this. Three stages of the believer's life, of every believer's life. Stage number one, in this world right now, we're in stage one. Let me tell you how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Right now, we're at home in the body, but we're absent from the Lord. That is, we're not with him face to face, but we're at home in the body. Second stage, Paul says in the very next verse, verse 7, we are absent from the body, but at home with the Lord. Now we don't have our bodies, but we are at home with the Lord. But there is a third stage to follow. And that is after the resurrection of the believer's bodies, we are at home in the body and at home with the Lord. Now that's something to look forward to. Every Christian can know that we will be with all of our loved ones who likewise are followers of Christ. Now what about the souls of unbelievers, the rest of the dead, Those, it says, do not come to life until the thousand years are completed. This would be referring to the time where their bodies will be joined with the soul. It's not to mean that they're in some state of limbo, that they're not experiencing separation from from God and the pain and agony that comes with it. But there's a sense in which when that body is joined, it's all new now. The pain is so greatly intensified. As for you and me, the thrill of having a body glorified is going to be wonderful. And so the souls of unbelievers, the rest of the dead, they don't come to life until the thousand years are complete. That's when the judgment takes place. Now, we come to the third of the events, and it's Satan is released from prison to once again deceive all the nations, verses 7 and 8. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to do what? There it is, to deceive all the nations. It's the same thing. The nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for a war. Can you guess what war that is? It's Armageddon. It's the final Armageddon. Armageddon takes place through the history of the thousand years. Those battles like at Megiddo, talked about in Judges 4, where it appears as if God's people are going to lose the battle and then with the intervention of God, there is victory. That's the final Armageddon. I've experienced Armageddons over the last year or two and three throughout my lifetime as a Christian. It's where it seems like I'm defeated and I can't find victory and wow, God comes in and supernaturally gives me the victory that I need to experience. But this is the final Armageddon. And this is when Christ is coming back for the final war. That will be talked about in just a moment. But this is the brief release. Satan is released from prison to deceive all the nations. Now, so you'll have another passage. You can just note if you would like. Revelation chapter 11, 7 through 13 tells of that brief release in great detail. And we've already studied it, so I will move from there. The only other term perhaps you need to understand is Gog and Magog. This is taken out of the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 38, it talks about it. I would suggest that this is not, as some are saying today, distinct nations such as China or India or Russia, uh, these nations that attack Israel. I suggest that's not the case at all. This is a term that the peoples of 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 God, the people of God who are understanding the Old Testament texts would know, oh, Gog and Magog. Uh, Gog here is uh, referring to the prince of Magog, which was Syria. And this, again, is much like Armageddon, where it looks as if there is defeat and God comes in. It's, as I used the term earlier, the battle at Waterloo. Uh, We don't refer to our battle at Waterloo as being that literal battle, we're referring to the type of battle that we're personally experiencing in our life. And likewise, the same for the believers as they read this. Now we come to the fourth event, and that is Satan is defeated by God at the Battle of Armageddon. This gets the least of the attention. It's only one verse, and it reads as follows. Verse 9. They came up to the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And this, the final Armageddon, the final battle where the believing church is delivered once and forever. That leads to number five, and that would be Satan is eternally tormented in the lake of fire and brimstone. Again, little attention to this, but verse 10 tells us, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When people say, you know, I don't think hell is forever. If there's a hell, I think it's a temporary deal. Nothing in Scripture indicates that at all. Those are called annihilists who believe that, well, there's a hell, but you're just annihilated and then it's all over. We don't, at least we don't see that in Scripture. No reason that we should interpret it that way. And when we read where the beast and the false prophet are also, you'd have to understand last night's message to greatly appreciate it. Last week you would know if you were here that we talked about one of the allies of Satan who was the The harlot. Babylon the great and she is cast into fire and brimstone she's done away with then when we come to chapter 19 as we studied last night we find that the other two allies the beast and the false prophet they too are cast into the lake of fire now we see Satan is being cast into the lake of fire and we would read this where the beast and the false prophet are also and say oh it must be chronological in this order. One goes and then the others staying a while and then, then he goes and the next and the next. No, I think what this is simply saying, this is a vision, keep that in mind. And it's referring here to the description that's already been given in a previous vision. And They're saying even where we saw in the vision where they fail, but it's all one in the same time. This is when Christ comes back in all of his glory And the church is raptured to meet with him. And he takes us back to heaven to be with him forever and ever and ever. And the judgment begins at that time. And so at that time, they're all sentenced. And they all are tormented at that moment. That takes us to the sixth event. And that is the rapture and the resurrection of the dead are followed by the white throne judgment. Verses 11 through 13. And I saw a white throne, him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, the death of Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged. That means they were all judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Numerous passages, New Testament, 2 Peter 3.10 talks about this. Matthew 25.31, just a number of texts. And note it says the books, not literal books. Don't think there's this huge book as every name. That's not what he's saying. It's like everything else. It's, it's a vision. It's figurative. But it is referring to the records of life of all peoples. God knows us well, and we're judged according to our deeds. The judgment takes place. And by the way, the books were used to refer uh, to the very same thing out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 10. And that's the terminology that's being used in this vision I'd like for you to look with me at one other text. If you have your Bibles, it might be fun just to look this one up. John chapter 5, 28 and 29, a quite revealing text, particularly in light of these two views of eschatology that we have been contrasting. I want you to keep in mind, if you go back to our board here, that those that hold to this uh, uh, more modern view would believe that there is a resurrection from the dead here The rapture, we're going to be taken up. And then there's going to be another resurrection for the lost after the thousand years are completed. And so really two different resurrections at that time. Now, note the passage in this text, in John 5. It says, 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all, note all, who are in tombs shall hear his voice. And shall come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I don't understand how you read that and think they're two resurrections separated by a thousand plus years the seven years. I don't see how that could work out. But that leads us to the seventh and final event those not found in the book of life are eternally punished, while those included in the book are eternally blessed. Verses 14 and 15. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown down into the lake of fire. So death, the separation of soul and body. Hades, the abode of the dead without the body, meaning our dwelling, Without the physical. Death is the final enemy to be abolished. Paul says the same in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. It's over. The end. And that's why I titled this message, The End. It is over. Outside our study of heaven, which comes next week, it's all done. Our enemy is abolished all the enemy's allies, all the enemy's subjects. Now, nothing left but a new heaven and a new earth for you and me as Christians to enjoy with a new body. It's going to be a great experience. But I want to close taking us back to this last episode. Picture with me. All brought to judgment. And here we are, and again, though it won't happen like this, Imagine the line of all the resurrected marching before the throne of Almighty God. The triune God who sit and who judge. And as one walks forward, Bill Jones. And at that very moment, as the judgment would begin, the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Bill is our child. He's mine. I have given my life for him. He has been redeemed. He has been purchased. He is ours forever. He is a part of our church, and he lives forever for all eternity in our fellowship. Enter into the life of God forever and ever. With great joy, he enters into heaven's great, great blessing. And next, Tom or Susan doesn't matter. And when their name is called, their silence and the judgment of those deeds begin. And at that moment, the one being judged says, Whoa, Lord, hold, 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 no. Bill, he was yours. I'm yours too, you know that. And with that, the master says, no, you're not mine. And perhaps the response from this one to be, but Lord, remember, don't forget. Don't you remember? I am yours. I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I perform many miracles in your name. And he says, no, I never knew you. I really didn't. Oh, I know you talked about me when you were at church. I know you lived a good life when you were with moral and religious people. But the truth of it is, that's a veneer. You didn't really have it in your heart. You never repented of your sins. You never came before me broken to say, "Only at the cross can I find help." You thought your morality was pretty good, and you had a lot of religious activity and By grace that you didn't deserve, we did some unusual things even through your sinfulness. But I'll tell you what, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness, Matthew chapter 7. At that moment, with great shedding of tears, there's going to be the reality that just to live it in the exterior is not good enough. It's got to be from the heart. And so I would ask as we close, seeker would you join the team that wins join the army of God who wins we live with him forever there couldn't be anything better but you have to come to the cross acknowledge only his righteousness can make you righteous give him your sin let him pay for it and then as he indwells your heart You live with him as his child forever. Christian, I began the series simply by asking the question, do you believe God's in control? Well, there's nothing else in the text to teach that he is. We've covered it all. And I hope and I pray that you have moved far enough along in your understanding of the word of God that you're now saying, yes, he's in control and all all things, that's when, figuratively speaking, you're preparing your sermon, you turn on the ball game of your interest, and you rest throughout. No big deal. You know you win. And there comes a fumble, and there comes an injury. And man, the fumbles and injuries of life are so numerous, but we don't have to worry. Does that mean we lose? No. We still win. We know the outcome. And so my prayer for every Christian, would you and I live today in light of the rest of the story as we pray together? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the whole story that we're not left to wonder what happens at the end. May we live our life in its light. And even now, would you draw many here, many outside your kingdom, would you draw them to you right now? Would you give them an understanding of the cross? Would you bring them in poverty, spiritually speaking, to be so poor in spirit that they would cling only to the cross? I pray, Father, that many would be born into your kingdom even because of this study through Revelation. And I pray for those of us that are your children already that we would quit so foolishly living as if we didn't know the end of the story. Thank you. We pray this all in the great name of Christ our Redeemer. Amen.